Hello, podcast friends. Thanks for joining us. I think that a key reason I went into the field of conflict resolution many moons ago is that growing up as a girl in the heart of an affluent, male-dominated, Wall Street kind of culture meant that I had to reconcile deep love for the members of my family, especially my powerful dad, and deep resistance towards many of their views and behaviors. Initially, at least while in college, I framed things as, on the one hand, my dad was a capitalist whose clients supported the coup in Chile, and I, deeply influenced by the raging American war in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, my knowledge of the hundreds of U.S. interventions into Latin America over the last century, and women's studies, declared myself a radical socialist feminist. Now, after many years of growing, ripening, and getting tossed around by the currents of our human existence, seeing the contradictions and lots of things and people, I'm less interested in polarities and much more interested in finding common ground, deeper dialogue, genuine contact between people in spite of difference. So I would say now that perhaps I am one part capitalist, a lover of innovation, entrepreneurship, and creativity, one part socialist, a firm believer in taking care of people's basic needs and our planet, and the rest of me, well, uh, I guess I'd just say rogue goddess, wanting to move beyond what my next guest calls models of domination to those of true partnership. Rianne Eisler is well into her later years and is still generating unsurpassed insight and contribution into how we can live together well on this planet. I interviewed her first in episode 28, Please Give a Listen, and said then and repeat now that she is one of the brightest lights and most innovative social thinkers out there. What I've always really liked most is that she transcends the polarities of right and left, capitalist, socialist, religious, secular, north-south, because, as she says, it's useless because there have been repressive, violent regimes in every single one of these categories. Instead, her frame is models of partnership versus domination. In my 20s, when I first read her book, The Chalice and the Blade, it was such an aha to me. And then this was reinforced by Harvard social anthropologist William Urey's book, Getting to Peace, both of them telling me that humans have not always been in a state of war and violence, that in fact, the vast majority of human existence on Earth is characterized much more by what Rianne calls partnership models versus domination models, or what Yuri might have called uh, 2,500,000 years of possible coexistence uh, to the 10,000 years of coercion. So many smart people that I talk to uh, just believe humans have always been violent and that there has always been war, but it's just not true. So I keep repeating that it's not with plenty of smart academic researchers backing up uh, that conclusion. People also don't generally know that during those times, men and women lived together as equals and that in many societies, the divine was often a revered goddess and maybe even a super sexy, fertile one. What Rianne so clearly adds to this discussion is that all the domination systems, whether they are right or left, are characterized by rigid gender stereotypes. It's not coincidence, she says, that whether it was Hitler in Germany or uh, ISIS in the Middle East today or the rightist fundamentalist alliance in the U.S., 
that a top priority is always getting back to this quote unquote traditional family. As Rianne says, it's code, isn't it? Authoritarian, rigidly male dominated and highly punitive family. Impetus for this current episode is Rianne's new book, along with Doug Fry, uh, Nurturing Our Humanity. She wanted to get the word out. And of course, I'm happy to have a platform to support the effort because her thinking is so valuable and not really widely understood. And then it's a big delight to get to know Doug Fry through this episode. I knew of his work as an anthropologist documenting earlier partnership societies and the gender balance uh, within them. Doug, uh, I have found, is a really special voice and perspective. I found his calm demeanor just made me feel better and more hopeful about the world, which I hope he will do for you as well. So my motto, which you've heard me say, is don't fight against the existing reality. Create a new reality that makes the existing one obsolete. That's Minster Fuller, not me. Um, And the other motto is the best way to predict the future is to create it. Um, from management guru Pete Drucker. And what I like about this conversation with Rhiannon and Doug um, and the new book, Nurturing Our Humanity, is that it really, it all lives up to those two mottos. Um, us organizational change consultants know that there's nothing more powerful uh, than articulating a compelling, clear vision for the future. So a couple of ideas that I just want to highlight before you listen to Doug and Rianne is... um, That gender is a key component to domination systems and is connected to the ranking of any human being over other groups, whether it be about race, uh, religion, sexual orientation, any of those rankings. She also points out that, interestingly, that as the status of women rise, uh, men no longer find it such a threat to their status, masculinity or role to also embrace caring values like universal health care, generous parental paid leave, etc. And that in partnership societies, Doug had lived in Finland for almost 20 years, but in the partnership societies they are looking at in the book, uh, there are the lowest gender gaps, there's an investment in people starting from early childhood, there's no homelessness, there's no violence, although of course people do lose it from time to time, uh, military budgets, are basically a few percentage points compared to our 57 cents on the dollar in the United States, which I still think is even a lowball estimate. And uh, these societies tend to be at the highest ranks of the global competitiveness indices. And finally, people are the happiest. So go figure. (laughs) Um, Hope you enjoy the episode. And without further ado, I bring you Rianne Eisler and Doug Fry. Well, welcome to you both. This is uh, the first time I've actually had two guests on the show, and uh, it is. And Rianne, it's such a pleasure to have you back here. Uh, As some of my audience might know, you are on episode 28, Partnership or Domination, uh, Voices from the Past, uh, what was it, Whispers from the Past, and something about our, I forget our title exactly. Um, You were so amazing and excellent, and I hope listeners will be inspired actually to go back and listen to that episode as well, because they really will go hand in glove. And um, Doug, it's really a pleasure to have you. Uh, we don't know each other, but it's uh, I know of your work, and I was really excited that you could join us today on this episode. 
Well, thank you. I'm just so delighted to be here. Yeah. So um, maybe I'm going to just, I, I think, start with asking the two of you, why did you write this book and why did you write it together? Brianna, I think actually you should start off and I'll, I'll well, go later. I'd be happy to start off. Uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you both. And I started to write this book actually 10 years ago because I really began to see the relevance of neuroscience to the research that I've been doing now for decades, identifying two very different social configurations that transcend right-left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, what I call the domination system and the partnership system. And then, uh, what was it, about four years ago, I was in touch with Doug. And it just occurred to me, my gosh, he brings such a marvelous amount of knowledge and expertise. Uh, so I invited him to be a co-author of the book. But uh, in terms of the reason, uh, basically, to do it, having given you a little background, I think that the information in this book is essential, especially at this critical point in our history, when we're seeing regressions to domination. And I think that the information that it provides about that this is not inevitable, and Doug has a big piece of that, and also the information that it provides about how our brains really develop, debunking, uh, well, you mentioned um, Pinker and that whole story of evolutionary imperatives that drive us to rape and to war, uh, you know, is absolutely untrue. We have alternatives. So I just feel very passionate about this new book. Let me slow you down because just to remind, uh, I think what's so interesting about domination and partnership, and of course that is not news to you, not news to me, but some people might be hearing that dichotomy for the first time. And I think in this age when we, uh, we are so polarized, thanks to Fox News, I guess, uh, maybe I can blame it on a lot of places, but you know, capitalist, communist, uh, or socialist, right, left. I mean, in this country, Republican, Democrat, and you've changed the whole paradigm to partnership and domination. So could either one of you say something just for the audience at the beginning to make sure they understand what you're talking about? Well, uh, should I, Doug, or do you want to take it, this? It's off? your model, Rianne. Please <laughs> go for it. I'll jump in in a minute. <laughs> well, uh, my research is really as both of you know, grounded, and my passion for it is grounded in my childhood uh, as a child refugee from Nazi Europe with my parents. And the questions that came up out of all the traumas that that involved, does it have to be this way? You know, does there have to be so much cruelty, so much insensitivity, uh, so much violence, or are there alternatives? Because we're often told they're not, right? It's just, quote, human nature. And I immediately understood when I started to do this research that trying to do this through the lenses of old social categories like right-left, religious, secular, 
Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern was useless because there have been repressive, violent regimes in every one of these categories. <laughs> so much for the human race. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, if you really think about it. Mm-hmm. Moreover, and this is really fundamental, these categories, as do unfortunately most uh, studies still of society in sociology, they pay scant, if any, attention to the majority of humanity, women and children. Mm-hmm. And uh, drawing from a database that includes, you know, this huge segment, you begin to see patterns. And it was these configurations that keep repeating themselves cross-culturally, historically. There were no names for them, so I called one the partnership system and the other one the dominator or domination system. And it's really a matter of degree. And in Nurturing Our Humanity, Doug and I introduce the biocultural partnership domination lens. And that is so fundamental for research and for studies now and for thinking. And I'm going to stop here. So uh, we're probably going to cycle around some of these ideas, but um, Doug, I want to get you in here. And I, I mean, this may not be the piece, the, the piece that I associate with you, again, we don't know each other very well, is, is something I've, I've actually wanted to ask somebody for a long time. Because out there in the world that I travel in, you know, many of people are saying, you know, 5,000 years of patriarchy, 10,000 years of patriarchy, mm. um, William Urey and the Getting to Peace, you know, was that along with Chalice and the Blade, those two books long ago really impacted me and got me on Good to hear. the courses that I've been on. But he says in Getting to Peace, you know, 2,500,000 years of possible coexistence as in contrast to 10,000 years of coercion. And I think I'm right in uh, coming to you to say, what is it? <laughs> okay. What's accurate here? You know, um, has it really been different in human existence than the, than the brutal warlike existence that so many people, very educated people, constantly tell me that it has been? Well, it's interesting you mentioned um, Bill Yuri. Uh, his name is spelled U-R-Y. My name is, of course, spelled F-R-Y. Oh. And I've, I've never met Bill Urey personally, but of course I know his books and, and admire his work very much. But, um, you know, I have a strange sense of humor. And um, when I meet him, eventually someday, I'm going to reach out my hand to shake his hand and I'm going to say, Bill Urey, the difference between you and me is you. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's my fantasy life. But Bill Urey and I share certain things. We're both anthropologists, trained as anthropologists, and obviously we're both very interested in conflict resolution, conflict management, war and peace, these types of questions. So it really is sort of an odd quirk of fate that our last names are three-letter last names with two out of three letters the same. So that said, um, I think I can come at your question because I am an anthropologist on the one hand, and I've devoted um, quite a lot of, of my years on the planet to addressing the question that Rianne started with and the question that you're posing. And that really is a, a series of questions really about human nature, um, war and peace. So it was back in the, the 90s and I was believing like I think the majority of Americans that there always has been war, there always will be war because that's just what we learn in 
in our culture. It is just part of our human nature. And one of my colleagues, um, now retired from University of Hawaii, Les Sponsel, uh, wrote an article, which was a very interesting overview of, of this topic. And he said, you know, for most of the human existence, there's not been war. And I read that, and I remember thinking, I think Les Sponsel has just gone off the deep end. Oh, my God, poor Les. How can you write something so ridiculous? And it, it took me a couple of weeks, really, as I just occasionally, you know, reflected on Les and this really crazy idea he had and so on. And then all of a sudden, could he be right? And that was a key event, uh, mid-90s, late 90s, I'm not sure exactly what year it was, where it just focused me to start investigating myself as to how old is warfare and when did war really come in. And what we find, uh, very interestingly, as often happens, you get cultural beliefs and cultural narratives that have just evolved and people, as, as Rianne has written about and I've written about you know, separately and also together in Nurturing Our Humanity, that these narratives are just incredibly important in shaping how we will uh, view the world. And I think a real message of nurturing our humanity is we need to question the domination type of narratives and understand, on the other hand, that there are partnership narratives that actually are lived out, that are in existence, that you know, reflect another reality, an alternative reality to the domination narratives that we take for granted. So your, your question, basically, as I see it, it is posing this um, narrative we have in the West that humans are nasty and brutal and short. They're greedy by nature and that they're violent and unequal, egalitarian, uh, inegalitarian, I mean, as part of just the way it is to be human. So if you look, actually, as I've done and others of my anthropological colleagues, at the archaeological evidence, and if you look at the nomadic foragers, which go back, of course, many, many millennia to the past, and how do these types of societies uh, live? They're really oriented towards partnership. And the archaeological record really clearly shows that war is not very old on the one hand. That's, that's one message that's important. But the second message, number two message about archaeology, is that we can see the various origins of war in different places very recently with what I would using Rianne's wonderful terminology and model, the rise of domination. So archaeologically, these type of domination societies come in very late, or the other way to put it, very recently. And we'll, we'll probably want to talk a bit about the nomadic foragers, because one aspect of partnership in general, and certainly lived out in foragers, is that men and women are equals, and the women are not dominating. And uh, both sexes respect each other, and they go about their business. There is division of labor, we would say, but there's not this type of domination society of one sex over the other. Okay. I mean, I don't know uh, for how many years there was that possible coexistence, but, and uh, we were foragers. And of course, in the, that era as well, I think there were many societies where goddess religions reigned and much more respect for the feminine, I think, my understanding. But um, isn't that, because there was enough to go around and there was enough space to go around so that people weren't concentrated on each other and there weren't limited resources and they could just move on if there was a fight? Um, that's certainly part of it, absolutely. What seems to be emerging, and there are a lot of details to be filled in, absolutely, you know, science continues in steps. But what seems to be clear 
is that there is what I like to call a complexity complex, <laughs> meaning social complexity, and it involves a very, um, you know, various features sort of working on each other synergetically uh, through time. Once people start to settle down, they need to extract more resources from the environment to um, support a larger population in one place. So you get settling down, rising population, more intensive resource use. And that means that when you're talking about foragers, not agricultural, right? We're talking foragers. There probably needs to be an aquatic resource nearby, whether it's an ocean, a river with a salmon run, or just uh, you know lush fish resources or lakes or what have you. So the, the archeology span shows this pattern that the complexity tends to come in uh, in aquatic environments. So there's an ecological factor for you, back to your question. But you also mentioned space to go around. Um, very famous archeologist talked about a packing threshold. And as these nomadic foragers, which are moving across the landscape, um, foraging, not warring, engaging in egalitarian behaviors, once they start getting too crowded, the traditional over millennial pattern was, well, separate, move somewhere else. But when the environment in an area becomes packed, if there's a resource base, like I say, like a salmon run on a river or some other marine resources um, to support a larger population, then some groups start to settle down. And this is sort of the, the beginning of the bad stuff, if you put it that way, because you can get these complex forager societies that then have larger population bases, inequality amongst people, women's status tends to start to go down. Um, you get warfare coming in, which is very significant. So these are huge changes. And I'm not implying that this happens or has happened everywhere, certainly not. But when you see it happening, the overall pattern is, is interestingly very similar. Well, and, and I would yeah. add something, if I may. Please. Because this is an area that I think is a little murky. Yes, what Doug says actually is true. But at the same time, you still find our complex societies and settled societies that are more partnership-oriented, and you find them not only in prehistory, like Chataluyak, for example, where there really are you know, no trace of warfare for a thousand years. It's a settled community. Women and men, as the archaeologist Ian Harder writes in the Scientific American, really there's no difference in terms of their life opportunities. There's Minoan Crete, there's some controversy, because, but usually it's from scholars who start with the premise that war is inevitable and then set out to prove it. Mm -hmm. But you also find it in complex societies today. You find it a uh, movement very much towards the partnership side in uh, the Northern European nations, Sweden, Finland, Norway, which really are much closer to the partnership configuration. And there are a number of theories, and who knows, you know, I mean, prehistory is very much a matter of interpretation, and the archaeologist Maria Gimbutas uh, did propose that part of the, at least in, in Europe, around the Mediterranean, it was the invasions of so-called Kurgan nomadic pastoralists that really dramatically brought about the change. But the point for me is that it is not, I'm not an environmental or technological determinist is what I'm really trying to say. 
And I think it's very important for us to know that the configuration of the Northern European nations, which are extremely successful in terms of low poverty, low crime, high standard of living for everyone, is the partnership configuration. And as Doug started by saying, gender is one of the major pieces there. And it shouldn't really surprise us, by the way, that in all of these categories and in all of these studies, gender is not considered, when you really think about it, out of 1,600 years of so-called modern science in the West, it's only 50 years ago, 50 years ago, that women's studies and then men's studies, gender studies, queer studies, even entered the academy. And they're still completely marginalized. Whereas that should be part of sociology, it should be part of everything. And as for child development, which is another major issue because one of the characteristics of contemporary foraging societies, and you can speak more to this, Doug, than I can, is that they really don't use coercion and violence in child rearing, mm -hmm. which is essential to habituate people to domination systems. So it's not coincidentally that whether it was Hitler in Germany or whether it is uh, ISIS in the Middle East today, you know, secular Western, religious Eastern, that a top priority, or the rightist, so-called rightist fundamentalist alliance in the U.S., a top priority is always getting back to this, quote, traditional family. It's a code, isn't it? Authoritarian, rigidly male-dominated, and highly punitive family. Let me jump to something that has been really, in gender, of course, is super interesting to me, and a niche of this podcast is not just processes to build common ground, but also that I think getting gender right is absolutely key to building peace on the planet from my own experience and conversations. But I've been super interested recently in watching the millennial generation and lower. I mean, sometimes down to preschool. It's a lot of conversation among parents of, of younger people about a gender fluidity. So I'm looking at it. I also have a gay daughter and I'm looking at it and thinking, wow, you know, it really feels like this movement towards gender fluidity in many respects is a peace movement and is very connected to actually creating a more peaceful planet. And I, I have more to say about that, but I wonder what either of you think about that. Well, uh, I will just say something very brief. Uh, the movement towards talking about gender, like the Me Too movement, the movement towards recognizing gender fluidity in roles, this is a major part of the partnership movement, although uh, many progressives still marginalize it because we've been trained to do that. Mm -hmm. They in don't fact, see the, the connections. The less importance, I mean, really, because I, re I remember waking up one day as if from a long drug sleep, realizing that out of all my years of so-called higher education, there was hardly anything by, about, or for people like me, women. Right. I mean, amazing. But in domination systems, you have to have rigid gender stereotypes because how else are you going to say that one form of humanity, the male form, is superior to the female form? 
that they should dominate and the other be dominated, that they should be served, that, you know, the other half should serve, which is a template, isn't it, for equating difference, you know, whether it's based on race, religion, sexual orientation, with all of these rankings of domination. So that's why, I mean, you've put your finger on it. Gender is a, is a key piece. It's not the only piece, but it's a key piece of domination systems. So I want to go one step further and get a little racy with you both. But I have, I just was listening to this whole conversation about circumcision. And oh my God, did it interest me. This person was saying, I guess it was a documentary about male circumcision, that um, pretty much the fundamentals of where circumcision comes from is about undermining pleasure, whether it's male or female. There are a lot of arguments for circumcision about cleanliness and religion, but fundamentally it's about uh, making sure that the race can continue, but to make sure that pleasure is contained. And then the person went on to say about uh, I mean, female circumcision, of course, you know, in this country, everybody thinks it's absolutely outrageous and, you know, it's not practiced very much. But uh, male circumcision is, of course, practiced all over the place without people even batting an eye. But fundamentally, they were saying, you know, what those movements are all about is trying to create a more fundamental binary system between male and female. So like, you know, when you circumcise a woman, you basically are taking away the part of her that is more male-like, the clitoris, which acts more like a penis. And uh, when you circumcise a man, you're taking away the foreskin, which is the most sensitive part of the penis. And it's very, and it's, and it's tissue that's very much like female genitalia. So you're making, this person was saying, you're making the man more of a complete man and a woman more of a complete woman. And you're taking away any of the sort of the the gender fluidity that's in the middle, which is really what our bodies are. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is I think our bodies, a lot of the real truth about humanity comes from how our bodies are. And sometimes we defy what our bodies are telling us about what truth is. So I don't know if you have any reaction to that, and I hope it's okay to talk about this, but I think it's super interesting and connected to what we're talking about. I, I could say as the anthropologist, um, I, I have a well, I'll try to take a biosocial view, as Rand was saying earlier. That's the view we take in the book. And I think that's really the way to go in terms of, you know, what causes behavior. But thinking in terms of social cultural anthropology, there is such a, a variation that you see out there in these practices. Some societies circumcise and others don't. Uh, this interesting group from Australia, they do what they call sub-incision. They actually cut a straight line along the base of the penis so that the semen... And I imagine the urine comes out earlier, uh, closer to the body of the male, put it that way. So there's these various practices, but a uh, big caveat here, this is not something that I've systematically investigated or researched, but that having said, as a big caveat, uh, my interpretation is with female uh, genital mutilation, it's definitely a way that, that males as a, as a culturally stronger group are dominating the women, and that this does tend, I, I would speculate, I'd love to see a study on this one, uh, occur in more domination-oriented contexts. So in, in the book, Rianne and I write on this, we specifically talk a bit about the Maasai, and also consider how the values are changing. So again, as an anthropologist, it's just, it's in our face all the time about how important culture is. Culture in terms of determining whether there's two genders, 
or multiple genders, or whether it's okay to engage in uh, homosexual sex as well as heterosexual sex or not. And right on down the line, same thing with genital mutilation. Do we do this or do we not? So I really think the different cultural traditions play a huge role in these types of questions of gender roles, gender determination, and so forth. I guess I don't have too much more to say about that one. Well, uh, my daughter claims, uh, and she's done a lot of research on race, but that in Africa, uh, what I call patriarchal institutions, you might not use that phraseology, but the, the people that were more queer, you know, were often revered and brought into society in ways that, you know, just, just was not shunned and, and no one was afraid of them. And well, I think this is a, a generalization, and of course we remember all generalizations are false, but nonetheless... I think in most of the smaller scale societies where there's a community where people know each other face to face, they tend to accept people as members of the community and value people as being members of the community. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, in that rare case where you get people who are just, you know, recidivist, troublemakers, deviants, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so with that in mind, I think there's a, a lot of just sort of natural tolerance in these societies or people with different orientations and different likes. I think of one specific anthropological example that stuck in my head, and this involved the Warani group of Ecuador, and there were two men, both married to women, and one couple came from somewhere else, and the two guys just became absolutely in lust with each other. Mm -hmm. And their wives were sitting in church, of all things, as this community had been Christianized, giggling and, and watching their husbands fondle each other in church. And it just struck me, of course, the openness and not seeing this as something to get all up in arms about in some way or cause huge fights, but just sort of, well, isn't that funny? Look at those two. And so, I mean, that's just a, one example of the extent of the variation. And of course, from, from North America, some of the Plains Indian groups had a third gender, which were males that uh, were sometimes quite revered as your daughter was saying for their talents in, in weaving and, and other arts, um, sometimes with a, a special spiritual connection and so forth. So yes, you, you get this type of, of thing. Again, big caveat, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't expect this type of question. I know, it's not really sorry. My, well, my area, but I'm doing the best I can as an answer. You're doing great, you're doing great. Let me chime in here because I think with all due respect to whoever compared uh, male circumcision with female genital mutilation, there is a world of difference. I mean, the amount of pain and lack of sexual pleasure that is caused to girls and women and the trauma that is caused to them. I mean, when you consider not only cutting off the clitoris, but in many places like in Egypt, for example, pharaonic uh, so-called, which I, I don't think had anything to do with the pharaohs, but a lot to do with later domination, you know, really strict domination culture. I mean, you sew the, the, the labia together, you have to yeah. cut them open for intercourse, yeah. you then have to cut them open again for childbirth, the fistulas. Uh, if you talk about taking away pleasure, frankly, a lot of men who have been circumcised uh, still have sexual pleasure, whereas these women simply have pain. So, and I, I really think that we need to emphasize that. I mean, I am not an anthropologist, but I have studied genital mutilation 
and it is a form of torture of traumatizing girls into accepting you know subordination pain and possession by a male is their destined lot whereas that's not the case hardly with male circumcision and so i think that we really have to be careful in equating these two practices yeah, fair enough. the second thing i want to say is that it really depends to a very large extent on whether as doug mentioned the culture orients to domination mm -hmm. because that's the purpose of female genital mutilation mm -hmm. period yeah everything Rianne said uh, if i could just loop back for a minute because Please. this may have been implicitly obvious but i want to make it explicit in in the book nurturing our humanity you know just out with uh, Rianne being the lead author and i trying to contribute as best i could we discuss about uh, most of these topics we've been uh, considering and one to, to emphasize which Rianne mentioned was that partnership societies exist across different levels and different types of societies. So we really do in the book, we consider the Nordic nations quite a bit and pull them in as an example of a modern state society where there are high levels of gender equality. There's low levels of internal aggression and often these societies are not inclined towards war either. But at the other extreme, uh, we have a, a chapter in periodic mention in the book of the nomadic foragers and how you see the same type of pattern in such a very different type of society. Uh, I like to think of the foragers as the original partnership societies just because they go back across millennia. And this is really, I would argue, and I have argued in fact, um, that we're more inclined towards this type of egalitarian thinking. And you can play the thought experiment on yourself. It'll, it'll work for almost everybody, not, not an extreme narcissist perhaps or sociopath. But we all get upset when we see inequality, and it bothers us. And in the book, Rianne has done some looking at it even harms people at the higher end of the social strata when they see and experience the domination or their privileged position. It affects their health negatively as well. Mm -hmm. So in short, I think we can make a biocultural evolutionary type of argument that is totally the opposite of this dominant male uh, just being inbred. We have to climb the corporate ladder because we're so naturally nasty and at an extreme we go to war because it's just in our nature. No, I would argue just the opposite, that we're actually living, we're the, we're the living products of millennia of evolution where we lived in small bands that needed to help each other, cooperate and share, nurture the kids together, take care of each other. And I, you know, in one sense, sense oh yeah, la-di-da-di-da. Well, actually, this is what the evidence shows if you look towards anthropology. And so one thing that both Rianne and I do, we try to make a very readable but yet evidence-based type of arguments. And Rianne can say it better than I, I think. I've heard her say it. It sounded beautiful. But the, all the different disciplines and, and knowledge that we bring into the book is, um, I, I, you know, I think to be modest, but it, it's quite um, remarkable. It's amazing. Yeah. And this is Rianne's type of thinking. I, you know, I give her total, total credit for being so holistic and so interdisciplinary. You started something, Doug, that I would love you both to fill out. And that's that, you know, I'm an organization. One of the things I do is help systems change and move forward. And I think one of the things that's most important is having a very compelling vision of what that change looks like. And I wanted you just to, you started to fully describe a partnership 
model, but what does it look like, feel like to live in something like that? What, what do you see? Well, Doug did. I mean, he lived in Finland and he can speak of some of his own and does in the book, by the way, in Nurturing Our Humanity, which I really have to um, say, and, and, and this is very important. Yes, it is a scholarly book and it certainly should be adopted in classes. At the same time, thank goodness, it's also such a wonderfully readable book. And uh, the feedback is, you know, at first we thought, wow, this is going to be really heavy, but it isn't. Yeah, no, it's... it's well, really it harks back in my part to my grandmother who brought me up saying, tell them a story, tell them a story. So I do this all the time in classrooms, and I know Rianne does as well. Um, but what does it feel like to be in, in a partnership society like Finland. I lived there almost two decades, 19 years to be precise. And my first, or very first perceptions was, oh, this is just a modern nation pretty similar to the United States. Yeah. And then of course you go <laughs> beyond the first curtain and you start finding out that the gender equality and the sex roles are really interesting. Women there just are confident and reliable, uh, or they have the, you know, the sense of self-reliance is what I, I mean. And so the, the men, for their part, actually, I, I think both genders would perceive the, the typical Finnish woman to have more social responsibility, um, be more mature in certain ways, more socially capable um, than, than the average Finnish man. And it, it's very interesting. It's, of course, the contrast to the United States with the, the not-so-subtle patriarchy. So. I, I've looked at this uh, egalitarianism in a variety of different ways, informally and a little bit more formally in, in my research there. And just uh, the, the sex roles shake you up a bit. Um, women have no problem with being um, romantically or sexually uh, assertive or taking the lead. And in fact, the Finnish men may be sort of shy and may need that to happen sometimes. <laughs> so, so that's just one interesting difference. But uh, in terms of social equality in Eastern Finland, the women were in charge of the cows, which required the twice a day milking, and you needed to be responsible. And sometimes the men um, would get paid or get some money or be coerced by buddies to go off drinking, and the women were there taking care of things. So this is, I think, off the farm, the Finnish farm, a, a sex difference that's been sort of evolving there for a while. One friend of mine, a sociologist, explained that the woman always had the key to the food cupboard on her waist, wrapped around her waist. <laughs> so this and the husband, we're not going to get in there and wreak havoc and eat too much or eat the food that was being saved for Sunday or something like this. And you know, there's just numerous examples historically and, and recently. Well, recently, they have a part of their government is the Bureau of Social Equality to make sure that in government and in private corporations, men and women... And in fact, anybody and anybody are being treated equally under the law. And I thought, well, that's pretty neat. A whole bureau of social equality to monitor this. They put out one publication in, in English, which I happened to pick up when I visited their office. It was the gender barometer. And I'd, I'd read some studies from, you know, long ago as an undergrad or a grad student about comparing in the United States how women now are in this horrible position. We've all heard this, of course, of, having to do all the housework and at the same time try to hold down the job and take care of the kids. Well, Finns looked at this very systematically as to husbands and wives and who does what in the, the household. 
And they found that, yeah, in fact, for some of these cleaning jobs, ironing, you know, for instance, less so doing the dishes, uh, going grocery shopping, women did tend to do a bit more than the men. But the, what the Finns did was they also looked at some things that I'd never seen considered in the United States, such as who transports children to sporting events, uh, who does car maintenance, who does home repairs. And in fact, and this was largely Finnish women, do women writing report were women, ended up with a balanced conclusion that men and women put in virtually the same amount of time into the household considered holistically, whereas sometimes they realize that one sex might be by experience or sex role a bit more trained towards changing the oil in the car and the other one might know how to iron better. But this is no big deal to the traditional Finnish family. They feel that equality, they want to be equal. So I, I might be just slightly overselling it, but not really. Um, you know, I, I just found it intriguing to live there in this type of partnership society. I was told by several Finns that a, a boyfriend and a girlfriend, a husband and wife should be best friends. I just thought that was so refreshing. Not that this doesn't happen in the States, of course. You know, everything is relative. It's a matter of degree and percentages and, and attitudes. I once time, I used the phrase, the battle of the sexes, and they just looked at me. I said, yeah, you know, battle of the No, we don't, though. What are you talking about? Yeah, interesting language. <laughs> I, I want to add something and then ask you to talk about it, Doug, because the higher status of women has a huge effect on the social fiscal priorities. And this is something that we bring about, bring out in nurturing our humanity again and again, and that Doug actually experienced. As the status of women rises, it isn't just that women in places like Finland, Norway, Sweden are half of the national legislature, it's the dynamics of partnership and domination systems connected with gender. As the status of women rises, men no longer find it such a threat to their status, to their, quote, masculinity, to also embrace caring values. So these nations are pioneered universal health care, generous paid parental leave for both mothers and fathers or, uh, you know, same-sex couples or whatever. Uh, Elder care with dignity, high quality early childhood education, parenting education. And I think that this is really the point. We tend to think of gender as sort of isolated in terms of our individual relations, when in fact men can be very sensitive and men can and women can be mean. You know, I mean that's but it's the socialization. And it's the value system. And at this point in our history, it is essential that we start thinking about what kind of fiscal policies do we need, not only in human terms, in environmental terms, uh, you know, caring for people, caring for nature, which are, you know, devalued, but also because we're moving into the post-industrial age. And we are told here that human capacity development is a major, major factor in whether we do or don't have that. So it's not coincidental that we did measures called the social wealth economic indicators showing that the United States has the highest child poverty rate, 
the highest infant mortality rate, the highest maternal mortality rate of any OECD nation. And yes, invest less than half, less than half in family support. Yes. And in caring policies. And Doug, if you can talk about what happened to you when you got there about healthcare, because it's so typical of the kind of culture shock, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm coming from the States, so I know we have this thing called health insurance. And here I am, just arrived to be there initially for one year as a visiting professor. And I think to ask the immigration woman, what happens if I should get sick or have an accident? I mean, should I buy some health insurance or, or what? And she said, what, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, if I have an accident or I get sick, I'm in the hospital, I, I w- would need some coverage. How can I arrange that? And she says, no, no, no. We take care of you. It would be inhumane not to. It's fabulous. So I just, I just love that line. It would be inhumane not to. Um, so they're, they're just, I mean, countless examples. I think Rianne said it, it very well, what she just said. But just to highlight, when you have a parliament that is, you know, more 40, 60, women tend not to be the majority there. It's an interesting phenomenon as well. I think perhaps, this is just my own thinking, that there's, there's still a little bit more ambition perhaps in the males to be politicians or something like this going on. Um, good question for research, right? I always love new research questions. But the women have a, a really powerful role. They, they have served as the highest ministers. Uh, before I left there, they had equaled out exactly all the ministries, which is analogous to our cabinet members, right? So it was equal, male and female. Uh, also, when I was there for two terms, we had the first Finnish woman president, Tarja Halonen. It was wonderful in, in all ways, I think. And so it creates a different way of looking at things. The woman's perspective, if I dare say that, of caring about kids, uh, caring more easily. Of course, Rihanna's right. You know, men can be socialized and learn to care too. And in fact, arching back to the foragers, the nomadic foragers, men are caring for children quite a lot in these types of partnership societies. Mm -hmm. But in the Nordic lands, it's just very typical that young husbands and wives with young children share the, the childhood responsibilities. You all the time see fathers walking the babies or the, fam- the whole family together, not just mothers, and, and so on and so on and so on. And they have social support. They do. Yeah. And this is really the point that we keep coming back to in nurturing our humanity, connecting the dots. Because if you analyze society and leave out the majority or marginalize the majority, you cannot connect the dots because you're missing some huge dots. And of course, our universities are so siloed as Doug is the head of a more multidisciplinary, you know, peace studies. But that's an anomaly in the university, unfortunately, still. Everything is still, you know, we're going to look at this little dot and that little dot. And gender is way off here. And child development is way off here. And it needs to be brought together. That's what nurturing our humanity does and once we think differently then we end the book with four cornerstones practical steps but before you go there because i'd like you to say that but this is the peace building podcast and one th- and of course this is all very connected but one thing that i think what you're talking about is so critical for is that the last guest that was well actually two shows before um has been tracking the military budget of the united states and 
I'm kind of on a campaign myself to wake up women in the global north and specifically American women uh, to just how our money is being spent. Because, of course, we the United States has boots on the ground in 80 countries. We spend more than the next seven to 10 countries combined on the planet, on the military. And I think that's even a under a low ball number. Um, because everything you're saying, like if we didn't do that, we would actually have money to be spending on a lot of the kinds of social support that you're talking about. And I think that women as a group are still so codependent. I mean, it's just like, uh, and really are not paying attention to how our money is being spent. A couple. Oh, go ahead, Doug. I was, have something to say, yeah. please. Hold, hold the thought. I'll say, don't forget your thought, Rianne. A couple of thoughts here that came immediately to my mind. And you're absolutely right, Susan. It's just appalling the amount of money that we spend in America on military. My first thought is what people really want, if you look cross-culturally, you look cross-history, they want security. They want safety and security. And somehow we have been led down this narrative in the States that military might will bring us safety and security. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely absurd for so many reasons now, one being climate change. How in God's name is that big military going to make us uh, you know, prevent climate disaster, just as one example? Mm -hmm. um, so what we really need to do, in my view, is perceive security much more holistically for, for all humans because we're all on the same planet and we need to pull together and solve some of these serious ecological pollution problems and just give up war, just to say it straight. It makes no sense for us to still continue with the institution of war under some idea that this is contributing to security of national security or what have you. It's ludicrous. We are in a, a real state of disaster and we just need to act. Mm -hmm. And the other one is just, to, my second thought is just to mention real quickly back to Finland, depending on how you count it, Finns spend one and a half to three percent of their money on their defense forces. And so that's part of the puzzle as to how they've had all the wonderful things we've been talking about in terms of being able to support people. There's no slums in Finland, there's no homeless. The elder are taken care of. Mm -hmm. uh, children get free lunch throughout their whole schools. That's just given. Their kids are at school, of course, they get lunch. Not to pay for it, it's just there. So when you don't spend half of your um, tax dollars. That's what we do in there. Half of our tax dollars go to the military. More. More it's than half. More. Okay. My statistics are old. You're right on top. 57 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. There we go. Precisely 57. That's that's appalling. Mm -hmm. and, and we walk around and we say our, our, the state of this country and somehow we accept it. Well, we're number one. Well, what is that? And, and if you listen to Stephanie, who is the guest who's been tracking it, this is at Brown University Center that's been tracking it. It's all been paid for on a credit card. Mm. <laughs> There's all this interest that's going to come due. That's just, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, making some people very rich. And yeah. The point that I was going to make, though, and I speak now as somebody who was a child refugee from the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. I want to emphasize that we do need a military. The issue is how much are we going to invest in it? Because look, unless this shift to partnership is global, and that includes places like Iran, like North Korea, et cetera, et cetera, we do need, because I mean, if people are very much in the nomination system, they see only in-group versus out-group thinking, whether it's Shia versus Sunni, 
or Sunni versus Shia, or it's the United States versus Iran or Iran against the United States. It doesn't matter. It starts really with that gender template, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. One form of humanity is more important yeah. and to dominate. But I absolutely agree that our military budget is obscene, really. But at the same time, I really, from a practical standpoint, want to emphasize this. Now, the good news is that there are people in all of these societies. I mean, the struggle for our future, as we bring out in nurturing our humanity, is not between right and left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, capitalist, socialist. I mean, the, the Northern European nations are not socialists. They have a very healthy market economy. They're caring societies. But the issue is within all of these societies, including societies that are much more domination-oriented than we are at this point in our history, shifting, shifting. And that's where these four cornerstones come in. Because if we only pay attention to dismantling the top of the domination pyramid, like most progressive social movements have, you know, and leave the foundational parent-child and gender relations intact, because one of the things we haven't touched upon, and I really think is so vital to touch on, is what we today know from neuroscience, you know, quote, hard science, which is that our brains are not fully formed when we are born. They develop in interaction with our environments, which for humans, of course, are primarily our cultural environments. Mm. And the degree, this is why we call it the biocultural mm -hmm. partnership domination lens. If you orient to the domination side, it doesn't matter whether you're communist or whether you're socialist or whether you're capitalist. I mean, it isn't capitalism, by the way. It's feudalism was domination economics. Empires were domination. Sheiks are domination economics. You know, it's, it, we need to start thinking in these terms. And we need to understand that our brains develop in interaction with our environments. And therefore, as neuroscience shows, what children experience and observe, especially in their early years, impacts nothing less than how our brains develop. Now, that is fundamental. And we have a lot of studies from neuroscience showing this, showing, for example, we have one study that there is a gene that makes men, is associated with violence in men. But not all men with that gene have turned out to be violent, only those that have what we today call adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. Now that is fundamental. And if so, if we are going to really change, we have to do it globally. And we have to start with the four cornerstones of childhood, gender, economics, but moving to a caring economics that gives value to caring for people starting in early childhood and caring for nature. And of course, narrative stories. And nurturing our humanity tells a story that is based on evidence and that we so need right now. 
So I know we're we're pushing our time, but I do want to ask you both a question that always comes up around. I can feel it inside of myself as long as I've been doing the work I've been doing. Uh, the whole thing about peace, collaboration, partnership, is it boring? Is it not as exciting <laughs> and dynamic as competition? And, you know, like there's a reason why newspapers are like using competition and violence and blah, 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 blah. So it's a question, you know, when I think about creating a kind of world that is way more pleasurable, way more focused on meeting people's needs. Is there room for innovation, for competition, for that kind of tension, which actually many people enjoy? Well, I, I think that there is, that partnership systems are hardly conflict-free. But the question is, how do you resolve conflict in domination system? Either suppressed or it erupts in violence. Uh, but that's a very important question you bring up because the adrenaline rush is really a substitute for the pleasure that we are deprived of. Mm -hmm. You know, in my book, Sacred Pleasure, I write about that, that, you know, domination systems are really based more on avoiding pain rather than seeking pleasure, which is, the, you know, pain is built into domination systems. Right. But I'm going to let uh, you have... A word about this too, Doug, because I think it's really, uh, I mean, in, in uh, communication school, people are taught that it doesn't lead unless it bleeds. Mm -hmm. I mean, right there, we're socialized. Yeah, right. Yes, and, and you're actually asking, as I see it, uh, you know, various questions or dealing with various elements. There's cooperation versus competition, for instance. And the United States culture, comparatively, is extremely competitive. So many Americans who just grow up in this type of culture, of course, they, they take on that this is natural in the way it is. But if you even go someplace like Finland, yes, they're competitive also, but they're also a bit more cooperative or easily cooperative. Now, every society needs people cooperating. That's sort of like a baseline. So it then becomes how much competition is allowed. And um, again, so many anthropological cases speak to this. You, you have societies where it's just considered abhorrent to be putting others down and being competitive and trying to do some one-upsmanship. These would, of course, fall towards the partnership end of the continuum. A little anecdote to sort of try to illustrate what I'm getting at here. Yeah. I once watched a group of four Finnish teens, about 20 years old, you know, 19, 20 years old, whatever, um, compete with each other to see who could climb up the side of this rock wall just with their hands. And finally, one succeeded. And all the others, good job, man, good job. And I thought, I've never seen that reaction in America. Mm -hmm. You have four young men like that. One succeeds. And others, ah, yeah, right? We know this. So it, it's subtle, it's cultural, it's interesting. But violence and aggression, peacefulness, excitement, I, I would say excitement is another factor here. I mean, again, what is exciting is, again, culturally shaped to a large degree. The peaceful societies that I've read quite a bit about, they don't seem to be wanting for excitement. They get joy, I think, is what people are getting in all sorts of other ways. It's exciting to climb a tree many meters up to get honey in the middle of the night, try to smoke out the bees while your companions are down below trying to catch the honey you're lowering down. That seemed pretty exciting to me, but it has nothing to do with competition. It certainly has to do with risk. Um, so you're raising, as I see it, a multifaceted 
question. Absolutely. Well, and this aspect of it, so many people in this country will argue about innovation and the need for you know competition to create innovation and creativity. Um, I wonder what you'd say about that. Well, interestingly, Finland is, has been ranked repeatedly at the highest level of this international competitive score. I forget what it's called. It's called it's the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Reports. And interestingly, these northern more partnership-oriented European nations not only have the lowest gender gaps, invest much more in caring for their people starting in childhood, caring for their environment, and they're always in the highest ranks of the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Reports. Mm -hmm. And also, as we bring out in Nurturing Our Humanity, because we really want people to read this book, mm -hmm. uh, they rank high in the happiness reports. My goodness, I mean, you know, we have all this evidence that not only is a more partnership-oriented society, not ideal, not completely violence-free, people lose it, but better, much, much better possible, but that it actually makes people happier. And the studies shows it. I mean, there was one study we have in, in Nurturing Our Humanity that I particularly love. Uh, the so-called pleasure centers in our brains light up more when we share than when we win. So interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, the evidence is there, empirical evidence. Mm -hmm. And I think that, but because, you know, a colleague of mine has called these old categories weapons of mass distraction <laughs> because they so fragment our consciousness and distract us from what we have to focus on. So we are probably need to end, and I'm hoping that the two of you could end like this. Things are feeling pretty bleak to many of us out there. And, um, you know, I think your book is a very hopeful book. And I'm wondering if you could end with maybe not everything that gives you hope, but the, something that you feel like is giving you hope, both of you. Well, uh, it gives me hope, and I'll just make it very brief, that we have all this evidence that if anything, as Doug puts it, the default for our species is not violence, is not rape and war and all of this stuff that was drilled into us, whether it's original sin or selfish genes, it's the same story. You know, we're bad, we have to be controlled, right? We have all this evidence showing that human nature, even half a chance, and that half a chance is moving more towards partnership, starting with childhood, gender, economics, getting rid of this gender system of values, narratives, that we can move forward. And this is so urgent right now. So that's why I am so passionate about all of this and about nurturing our humanity. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, I, I totally agree with everything Rianne said. I would have said it slightly differently, but I totally agree. I guess, elaborating a little bit, I've been, as I mentioned earlier, working on the human nature, war and peace question for a very long time. And what I've really come to conclude based on my studies is that, yes, we are inclined towards needing security, and there are dangers that arise, as Brianna was pointing out earlier. And we, we need to have mechanisms to deal with these, whether it's law, conflict resolution mechanisms, social control mechanisms. Uh, you know, every society needs a police in some way 
if you're in a society with, without a formalized police force, uh, the people join together in these bands um, to protect themselves against any person who just loses it. So despite our, well, with our, our long history of being humans, we have solved so many problems collectively and we have survived and we've come this far. And we really are a creative, gifted species. I mean, look at the technological feats and modern medicine and understanding the universe. And in fact, conquering nature is a huge feat. No other species has done it to the extent that we have. Not that that's good in this case. But my point is, we tend to just look around and see things how they are right now and see that it's dire times. But we, we faced all types of problems in the past, which we have overcome and surmounted. So that gives me a bit of hope here too, that we'll also be able to address some of the, the important issues such as warfare and climate change and inequalities and uh, inequalities amongst the genders and, and all of this stuff that we have to work on. Again, if you think back to the Nomadic Forager Band, it's, it's really based in our heritage to think in terms of equality and cooperation and sharing. So if we can draw on to steal Stephen Pinker's, notice I said Stephen Pinker this time, <laughs> his Better Angels of Our Nature, and a few others that Marianne and I add in there. Um, there's hope, absolutely there's hope. Well, really, thank you both so much. You, you've, I think this this book is a gift. Thank you. It provides, it's kind of a roadmap, really, for, for how to move forward, I think. Um, so I agree, I hope people read it. And I really thank you for both of your time and energy and putting it together and you know, all of the wisdom that's gone into that. And Rianne, you're just amazing. And Doug, you are too. And I'm just really appreciative to you both. So thanks a lot. Thank you both so much. And onward. 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 <laughs> onward. Bye-bye. 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 So thank you so much for listening to this uh, episode. Please share this with anyone that you think might be interested like us wherever you uh, get your podcast. Please leave reviews. Uh, blog. You can leave a blog comment on susancoleman.global. Our next episode is going to be with Ria Yuyata, who started an organization in South Sudan called Crown the Woman, another amazing young woman. So stay tuned for that. And thanks again so much for joining us on the Peace Building Podcast. Mm-hmm.